We at Harlem Baptist Church want to welcome you as you join in listening to the word preached with us. We hope that you are both challenged and encouraged as we hear from the word of God. We pray that through this recording, you would know the truth of the gospel and that you would find life in Christ. If you don't have a church home, you are always welcome to join us. If you do, we pray this would not be a substitute, but instead a supplement to the preaching of your home church. Information about Harlem Baptist, as well as other sermons and resources, can be found at our website, www.harlanbaptist.org. So this morning, we're continuing through the book of Romans, and we have a interesting passage uh, in that uh, we finished chapter 2 and we're starting chapter 3, which of course, uh, one thing I think we're really, really becomes clear, especially in a book like Romans, is the idea that when Paul wrote this letter, he didn't include verse numbers and chapter numbers, uh, but this was one long argument. And uh, as I mentioned last week, when we read what Peter had to say about Paul, he said, sometimes Paul's really difficult to understand. And we, we talked about how it was important for us to not take that as an excuse not to try to understand it, but just a a, a grace to say, look, it may take time and effort to work through what Paul has to say, but what we can learn from Paul is absolutely important, and we should listen to him. And I say that, and I don't want to repeat what I said last week as just a preface, but as I was preparing for uh, this sermon this week, and you know, I, I try to get as much help as I can after I've spent time looking at the passage and see what wiser, godlier men have said from me. And I started one commentary I was reading, and he said, you know, someone not accustomed to Paul might quickly come across verses 1 through 8 of chapter 3 and think that it'll be easy. He said, but this might be the most difficult eight verses of the entire epistle of Romans. And I immediately got very nervous. (laughs) Because there's there's a lot to unpack here, but I think I can help us Uh, see this if we just follow what Paul is doing. Uh, So we're going to read verses 1 through 8, and essentially we want to read verses 1 through 8 as Paul presenting an argument to his his audience, uh, but specifically still the Jewish audience uh, of the church in Rome. So Paul, we've got to remember who Paul is talking to this whole time, because that influences how we then understand this, uh, this argument he's making and the rhetorical questions he's asking. He's using uh, what we hear as a, a term called a diatribe, and we usually think about that as someone just going on a rant against somebody, a diatribe about something. But Paul's not ranting here. Paul is divinely inspired by the Holy Spirit, and he's, he's using the logical argumentation of a diatribe to anticipate objections to the truth that he is presenting about the gospel and to eliminate opposition so that people might hear the truth. And we need to hear the truth. Because as Paul is going to provide evidence for, and we need to hear it just like the Jewish audience in Rome needed to hear it, we often bring up objections to the gospel. In our heart, we bring up objections to the truth that we hear because of our own sinfulness. 
our own sinful hearts. We don't want things to be true that are because they convict, but we need to be convicted of the truth. Uh, and I think that's exactly what Paul uh, does here in these eight verses. So uh, I'm going to read through the text. If you can, I want to invite you to stand with me. We're just reading eight verses this morning, and then uh, I'll pray before we get started. So starting in verse 1, chapter 3. Then what advantage has the Jew, or what is the value of circumcision? Much in every way, to begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. What if some were unfaithful? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means. Let God be true, though everyone were a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. But if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? I speak in a human way. By no means. For then, how could God judge the world? But if through my lie God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? And why not do evil that good may come? As some people slanderously charge us with saying, their condemnation is just. You may be seated. Let's pray. Father, as we read Paul's letter to Rome, and Lord, we examine, Lord, his responses to these objections to the wonderful truth of the gospel. Lord, may we, Lord, become aware of the objections in our own hearts. Lord, the ways in which we push back against our need, Lord, to hear the truth about our sin, about God, your righteousness, Lord, about our unrighteous acts. Lord, may we hear these truths. May you help us to understand them, Lord, by your Holy Spirit. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. So, I know as I read through these objections, you can begin to hear Paul's anticipation in those rhetorical questions he asked. And we see four main ones that we're going to look at this morning. But I think it's helpful for us to think through just what Paul's doing in terms of our own context. And, you know, I can think of a really good illustration. Uh, but, I mean, I just want to ask you, don't you just, does it not just confound you, frustrate you when someone dodges a direct question or a direct statement? When you ask a question and you get the runaround and they never really address it. I know you, if immediately what's probably coming to your minds, because I know it's all I could think of when I thought about this, this trying to run around the truth and run around direct questions, you think back to the, both debates that we've seen. Uh, if you punished yourself enough to watch those, uh, the presidential and vice presidential debate, you can ask a, a moderator, can ask a, any politician, it seems like, a direct question, and it's somehow justifiable for them to just run around and answer every question other than the one they've been asked. And what's going on there is this idea is I'm going to run away from that which is going to challenge me. I'm going to try to present my best foot forward. I want to present an argument to defend myself. And that's the 
argumentation that's just true to human nature to begin with. We all have this desire to justify ourselves. But the whole point of the Gospel is that we can't. We stand condemned and are unable to justify ourselves because we are sinners. We can't ever pay the cost. So, what's happening here is Paul is not letting his audience dodge the question. He's not going to let them dodge reality. He's going to confront them. So he anticipates their objections. And it's not like Paul wouldn't have known these objections as if, as if he's presenting an ad hominem argument about what they're going to object. Paul knew these were real objections that he had heard. And he, as a Jew among Jews, a persecutor of the church, these are questions that he probably asked himself. But as we see, Paul is not going to go to his, himself or his own authority to present how solid his points are. He was convicted by the Word of God and even quotes from the Word of God to prove we stand condemned. You see, what's at root here, the title of this sermon was God's faithfulness and God's righteousness because those are the two things that we must not question or we stand condemned. But at the root of sin is the desire to question God's character, to question who He is. As we've gone back again and again to Genesis and looked, what did the serpent say to Eve? He asked, he said, did God say? Can you trust Him? And what I want us to see from, as we look at these objections this morning, we want to understand Paul's argument because there's a lot of application for us but most of all, I want you to go away today having read this text even more assured of God's faithfulness and God's righteousness. See, God proves His righteousness in His judgment. And Paul's been making this argument all along. See, the, the Jews were offended at Paul's condemnation on them. Last week we looked at the fact that they were refusing to acknowledge that they couldn't keep the law themselves and they were failing to see what it actually meant to be a Jew, a, a son and daughter of God, an heir to the kingdom of God. They had lost sight of God's defining characteristics of being someone who's born again, who's been given a new heart. And they were assigning only outward signs, so circumcision or the keeping of the law as that which identified them as a child of God. But Paul says, a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart by the Spirit, not by the letter. So he anticipates the first objection here in verse 1. He says, well, then what advantage has the Jew. What is the value of circumcision? So the first objection is, well, what was the point then? So he thinks as a Jew hears this condemnation, their first response is going to be, well, then why did God bother with, the, with all these things? Why did God give us the, the law of Moses? Why did God give us the covenant of circumcision? What was the point of it all? We think, what? So we have no advantage at all? So it's kind of this desire from the Jew, Paul anticipates there's this going to be a frustration that, well, aren't, isn't there something special? 
why I'm a Jew, I followed the law, I was born, this is what I was taught. Is there nothing of advantage for me to know? And Paul says, much in every way. You can hear the grace that he's showing to people whose worldview is being entirely turned around. They've been taught incorrectly. But Paul's desire is for them not to make excuses for the incorrect teaching that they've received, but for them to hear the Word of God, to hear the truth by the Spirit, to be convicted so that they might experience new life, true life. But he knows that they're going to respond, so he anticipates with that first objection, what was the point of the covenants? And didn't God keep them with Israel? What is the value of circumcision? And there's a ton that could be unpacked right here, but bound up in this objection is a misunderstanding of the law and of God's calling on the people of Israel to begin with. Paul says much in every way. There is value. There is advantage in being a Jew, but not for salvation. There's value because the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. They were given the written Word of God. They had the promises of God. So what's Paul going to say? He says, but see, if you don't understand the promises of God, if you don't use what's been given to you, if you reject it, as has been evidenced for thousands of years, then you're going to miss out on the good news, the point. As we already look back to Deuteronomy 30, the second giving of the law, as Israel's about to enter into the land, we saw this same truth that God said, look, what needs to happen is a new heart needs to be given because these people are going to just run away. And in this objection that Paul is addressing, we see what at the heart is a desire for a people to find a reason to be justified apart from their, their own actions. It's an attempt not to be responsible for themselves. Does that not sound, if we can make excuses for whatever decisions we make, make excuses for whatever situations we find ourselves in, if we can make excuses, put the blame on somebody else, then we can feel a little bit better about ourselves. But Paul is going to take away any kind of corporate idea that they can put their blame on, but instead he is going to say, look, you stand individually responsible That's clear from their misunderstanding of his word, of the word and of the promises. So see, they're forgetting what God's intent, what God's stated purpose was in making, creating the people of Israel. He was creating, he was putting a people who were set apart to glorify him and to testify to the world of his grace and goodness of the promise that He had made to bring about redemption and salvation to mankind. And they'd begun to think that it was something about them, but if you go back and read the, the law, if you read the book of the law, God specifically says, it's not because you were great that I brought you out of Egypt, but it was for My name's sake. See, God's goal is to make a people who glorify Him in everything that they do. A people who find their complete joy and fulfillment in Him and 
anything short of that is evil. So when God made a covenant with them as the people of Israel, He was making a covenant to set them apart so that they might know Him. He says, so that you will be My people and I will be your God. And this wasn't as if God was doing something for Himself that He needed them. He was doing that so His name might be known and it was a gift to them. So what advantage do they have by being a Jew, by receiving the covenant of circumcision? God had revealed Himself and made Himself known to them. And to question that that was grace is to lay condemnation on God as if He did not keep His side of the covenant. And if you go back and read through the law, you see it is the people of Israel who rebelled. It's the people of Israel who worshipped false gods. It's the people of Israel who profaned the sanctuary. It's the people of Israel who disregarded God's guidance and God's grace again and again and again. Yet God remained faithful, including remaining faithful to the very condemnations that He said, the things that He would bring about when they inevitably rebelled. He said, I will remove you from the promised land. I will send you into exile, and then I will bring you back. And he did exactly those things. God's kept his word this whole time. So this first objection is an objection. Well, what advantage did we have by being a Jew, by receiving the covenants? And it's a disregard of God's grace in making himself known to begin with. And it's a, a way of skirting the question by trying to bring up some false accusation that has no merit whatsoever to avoid the fact that they did not keep the covenant. They stand condemned. Israel was entrusted with the revelation of God. Not only through that, not only that, but through Israel, God has brought a Redeemer. I want to come back to that. It is through God's chosen people that He has brought a Redeemer for His chosen people. Of course there are advantages, but advantage, blessing, opportunity does not equal salvation, and it sure doesn't give us an excuse. In fact, they stand even more condemned because they had the oracles of God and still did not listen. That's the first objection. So we move on and as we see it would be helpful to break up the text. I probably should have done this on the screen just to see these different questions. So he says in verse 2, to begin with the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. So the next objection that Paul anticipates is this. Well, what if some were unfaithful? Does their faithfulness nullify the faithfulness of God? So he hears them object, okay, well, some were unfaithful, but does that mean God isn't faithful? And again, that goes back to what was the covenant that God had made with him? Has God failed at any point in his side of the covenant? And the answer to that is a resounding no. Paul says, by no means. He says, let God be true, though everyone were a liar. So this objection that God has not kept His side of the covenant, or to say that somehow Israel's unfaithfulness will equate to God's faithfulness, 
That's absolutely absurd. But do you see what's happening at the heart of these objections? It's a people trying to justify themselves by questioning the character of God. Again, we go right back to the garden. What's really fascinating at this point is Paul anticipating these objections and addressing them by providing answers. This is the first time he then quotes in the midst of this objection. He quotes from Psalm 51. I want you to think about all the implications from the fact that he's quoting from Psalm 51. This is David's famous confession. His psalm of repentance after he has committed adultery with Bathsheba as he's murdered one of his most loyal men, Uriah. And David, when he quotes from Psalm 51, he says, against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Paul just quotes the latter half of this verse. He says that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. David confesses his sin because David had tried to justify all of his actions in his head. But it all came back to haunt him. But God, He keeps His promises. Promises to bring about judgment Promises to make His righteousness known despite the unfaithfulness of men. And the unfaithfulness of men never overcomes the faithfulness of God. And that's the beauty of the Gospel. That's grace. It's not an objection. That's the truth. That's the good news of the Gospel. And this is no more clearly evident than in David himself. So David, who is the man after God's own heart, David, the man who God established a covenant and saying to him, a son of yours, your house will sit on the throne of Israel forever. He says, if you abide by my rules, if you will follow me, if you will live and honor me and take care of the nation, a son of yours will abide or live on the throne, rule on the throne forever. God makes that wonderful promise, that covenant with David. And yet, Paul then goes and quotes. He says, well, does David's unfaithfulness nullify the faithfulness of God for God to make that happen? By no means. Okay, so God still works. He still puts someone on the throne. So He puts Solomon on the throne. Solomon, who's the wisest man to have ever lived. The richest man to have ever lived. Solomon, who's gifted by God to lead the nation well. So Solomon, surely God's going to you know, do great things through him. What does Solomon do? He has over a thousand wives and concubines. He builds temples to the false gods on the high places in Israel. He leads the nation astray. Did God not use the unfaithfulness to demonstrate His faithfulness? Well, Solomon, even though despite his sin, God is going to work faithfulness. So God, Solomon, has a son. So he has Rehoboam who loses ten of the tribes to Jeroboam and the nation is split. Israel is no longer unified. You have the kingdom of Judah and the kingdom of Israel. And you have unfaithfulness. If you go back and read through First and Second Kings, you see these long lists of, and 
he was a king after God's own heart or he was a, a king not after God's own heart. He did not follow the law of God and he was sinful and rebellious. And we see that again and again and again. There's unfaithful king after unfaithful king. And then finally, both Israel and Judah are sent into exile. And it seems as if the royal line is gone. We say, well, David's side didn't keep the covenant. They were unfaithful to the covenant. Look what they did to the nation. Look what came of the people of Israel. And then the New Testament opens up in Matthew. What does it open up in Matthew? It's a genealogy of Jesus Christ, who is the descendant of David. And it traces the line back. And we see, despite all the unfaithfulness of Israel and its kings, God has remained faithful. And He's going to keep that Davidic promise. He's going to keep the promises of the Mosaic Covenant. He's going to keep the promises that He made to Abraham for all the nation of Israel. But they're fulfilled in none other than Christ and Christ alone. So as we read from Galatians 4 last week, the offspring, He said, look, it's not offsprings, right? It's not plural. It's offspring. It's fulfilled in Christ. So Paul says, look, your objection it's proven futile. It's proven foolish in light of God's faithfulness revealed in Jesus Christ. So let God be true, though everyone were a liar. God must be true. I think this is true that God will remain faithful despite all the unfaithfulness of men. How good is that statement from Philippians 1.6? Paul says, I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. The faithlessness of God's people does not nullify the faithfulness of God, and for that we should be thankful. As if that wasn't enough, we had two objections, and Paul proves them wrong. Then he comes to Verse 5, and he says, But if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? And he says, I speak in a human way. He says, by no means. So all of what we read in verse 5 is Paul presenting, the, the, the anticipating the questions, the objections that they have. So they're saying, look, well, if all this is true, if God can bring about faithfulness and prove Himself despite our, our unrighteousness, despite the unfaithfulness, then how can we stand condemned? He says, if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? So it's that question, wouldn't that mean that God would be unrighteous, that He can bring about righteousness even through our sin? Would it not be wrong then for God to punish us? And you might hear that and think that's absolutely absurd. And you should think that's absurd. But that's an argument, and that's an argument that we make that we will say, well, if God can do that, why should I have to suffer for my decisions? And again, what's happening here? It's this rejection of responsibility for our own sin. This is something our world loves right now. This ability to somehow look at things and justify ourselves without taking responsibility for our own actions, taking responsibility for our own decisions. We want to put the blame 
on somebody else, making excuse for ourselves. But Paul says, no. We rightly stand condemned. He says, how then could God judge the world? And what he's saying in this is, if we think that somehow we can be under a different standard than the rest of the world, then we are calling God unjust because that truly would be what is unjust. As if God, whether it's the Jewish people because they were the chosen people, but even though despite their unfaithfulness, despite their sin, God said, okay, well, it's all right. I'm going to overlook that. But God will not overlook any sin. For if God overlooked any sin, then He would be unjust. Not because He overlooks sin and that He can bring about righteousness despite our sin. Israel couldn't live according to a different standard, and neither can we. We will all be held to the righteous standard of God's holiness. If God were to give Israel a different standard, that would make him unjust. Not the other way around. If you were in Sunday school this morning, and I'm sorry I didn't get to join you all, but I was reading through the lesson, and there's no better example than Jesus' parable of the prodigal son of this exact truth. The prodigal son takes his father's inheritance, his inheritance from his father, and squanders it, loses it all, brings shame upon the name of God, the name of his father, living in sin, finds himself in the midst of feeding pigs, eating that which was unclean, having nothing for himself, and he returns to the Father. And we have that wonderful story, but at the end of that story is this very powerful portrayal of his brother, the one who had all the advantages, the one who had received the grace from his Father, who had lived there with his Father, who had been right there even in the midst of his brother's abandonment, his brother's sin, his brother's rebellion. And what does the older brother do when he sees his father lavishing grace? He says, you never sacrificed the fattened calf for me and my friends. And bound up in that statement, bound up in his jealousy, is the same mindset that the Jews were having. And Jesus was preaching that parable against the Jews, this mindset that I live under a different standard. I don't need to be condemned like he does. But based in that statement, rooted in that statement, that mindset is self-righteousness. A refusal to acknowledge that we stand condemned. Self-righteousness kills. And as the lesson said this morning, self-righteousness leads to resenting the Father's goodness. These objections that Paul is dealing with are resentful objections. Because they don't want to admit their own sin. And they don't like seeing God extend grace to others. How guilty are we of the same?
That was objection three, and Paul continues on. Verse seven, he says, But if through my lie God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? And why not do evil that good may come? He says, as some people slanderously charge us with saying. Now, here is an objection that comes from a different route. Because once we see in verse 8 what's happening here, Paul is quoting a statement that he knows they're objecting to, but they're objecting to because they're accusing Paul of saying that he agrees with this statement. And what's going on here is what we're going to see as Paul unpacks this justification by faith alone, not by works, is this idea that because God shows grace, we're not held to the law, that we are not required to live because these are the objections. Paul's been looking at this. Look, we all stand condemned, but what the Jewish person now wants to begin is like, well, if that's the case, if the law doesn't have the function of being a privilege for me, then that means the law doesn't matter. So that means I can now live however I want to. They're saying, Paul, what you're saying is that because of what God has done, that God is going to be forgiving, that God can bring about His glory even through my sin, you're saying that the law doesn't matter, that I can live however I want because God is going to bring about His good, His glory, no matter what. And that is a falsehood. Paul says, some people slanderously charge us with saying this. He says, and their condemnation is just. So if that was true, it should be condemned. If he had been saying that, it should be condemned. But he's not. So the objection here, Paul's having to deal with an objection that he's even being accused of. Which is interesting enough, that means that he's being slandered by those who are objecting to what he's preaching already. So what is the objection? Let's walk through that just for a moment. Should we be condemned if God is glorified through our sin? It goes right back to what we've already talked about, just coming at it from a different angle. Saying if God's glory can be found through our sin, shouldn't we continue in sin? That is a lie straight from hell. How in the world could we justify that? But that is what sin does. It creates this ability of us to come up with the craziest schemes to try to justify ourselves by saying, well, look, God would be not glorified if I don't sin. How absurd is that? But how irresponsible is that? You don't, again, what is happening? We're refusing to acknowledge our responsibility for our sin. And Paul says, you cannot run away from it. is being described here is a term called antinomianism, which nomos is the law, so it's no law, an anti-law. So if there's the law doesn't matter. But Paul has never said this. When Paul, we looked at that last week, at the purpose of the law, the law was not meant to save ever, but that doesn't mean that the law isn't good. The law is a guide. It's a grace from God towards life. For us to reject it in any way is still to, to live in sin. But Paul's gospel is the gospel of grace, the gospel of justification by faith. 
You see, Paul's doing, he's anticipating all these objections. He's looking, he's trying to address the issue of the heart so that people would realize just how corrupt their hearts are, how they've tried to justify themselves in so many different ways, how they've questioned the character of God so that they would see the grace of the gospel that God has come in Christ. He's provided a substitutionary sacrifice so that we could be atoned for and that He could give us new hearts. See, it's justification by grace. It's God's grace through faith. But to assume that the law doesn't matter now is just another attempt to subvert God's righteous judgment and to avoid responsibility for ourselves. And Paul rightly calls this what it is. He says it's slander, worthy of condemnation. And here's the thing. Our world is, we're so, as humans, are so geared towards self-justification that we come up with crazy objections like Paul is dealing with right here. But we're also so consumed with, with self-justification that we create all kinds of rules that we need to follow and that everybody else needs to follow too. We create a legalism that we have to live by. And when someone like Paul comes, comes in and preaching blasting away any self-righteousness, the response is, well, you're saying the law doesn't matter. And here's what's so good about this. This means that we should be wary of someone who says, well, your gospel is too hard. It's too easy. As Martin Lloyd-Jones says, he, he says, if you're ever confused about what you should be doing, a good question or to ask is this, is this glorifying to God and humbling to me? Because you see a gospel that is hard should be humbling to us because we realize we've done nothing. But is it glorifying to God because does it display the fact that even through our unrighteousness, He can prove His righteousness. Even through our unfaithfulness, He can put on display His faithfulness. And you see this accusation that's been levied against Paul, it's levied against those who would find their justification in the law. And another thing that Martin Lloyd-Jones says is that we, if we're not being accused of antinomianism, so if we're not being accused of being abusers of grace, then we're probably not preaching the gospel as we should. Because the gospel of grace, of justification by faith alone, is offensive to the self-righteous people of this world of which we all are. Paul says, by no means, by no means. So what's the good news? In this passage, which is a difficult one to follow and understand, Peter's point about Paul's words, proven, understandable, recognizable here. What I want us to see is look at God's faithfulness. Look at God's righteousness despite our own. And look at the ways, as Paul did anticipating these objections, how his objectors and how we ourselves have 
sought to skirt the question, tried to get away out from under this condemnation that is coming down on us. Because at the heart of every one of these objections is an attempt to deny responsibility for our actions. It's, it's within this, response, or this denial of responsibility that we desire to place condemnation unjustly on God. It's the root of sin. It's the very first sin lived out in just a greater way. It's a denial of God's character so that we can say something good about ourselves and a refusal to acknowledge what's wrong with us. It's a, an attempt to say that the ends do justify the means. What justifies us is God's righteousness graciously, graciously substituted, imputed to our account by His grace through His Son. The ends don't justify the means, so don't try to justify yourself. And don't question the righteousness or the faithfulness of God. Another thing to, that's exposed here is Paul, who's the theologian of the New Testament, exposes this truth. Lazy theology exposes lazy worship. Those arguments weren't good arguments. But those are the same objections, the same arguments that we use in our own hearts as we've already shown and as we hear the world accuse against God. But it, those lazy arguments, that lazy theology, it exposes the lazy worship. And really what it is, it's not a worship geared toward God, it's a worship geared toward ourselves. And when we compromise our worship, Paul's trying to show us when we compromise our worship, we compromise our lives. We need to hear the truth of the gospel, which is the bad news first. We're sinners in need of redemption. The good news is that God has provided it. And how remarkable is it? As we have the, ob the objections that Paul listed here, they seek to condemn God while justifying men. How remarkable is it then that our justification literally comes as God does in reality take on our condemnation in Christ though He was innocent so that we could be made righteous. There's no clearer display of this truth than the cross itself. See, no man standing before that cross, standing in that crowd as they yelled, crucify him, crucify him. No man could try to excuse himself for his actions taken to kill an innocent man. And Peter, in his first sermon in Acts 2, says exactly that. 
Listen to his statement. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. As you yourselves know, this Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. God's faithfulness to keep his promises does not nullify, is not nullified by the unfaithfulness of men. An objection like that shows the heart of men, shows the heart of sin that dwells in each of us, but on display in the cross is God's faithfulness. A faithfulness that he kept his promises. His promise tied all the way from Genesis 3.15 that he says, your offspring will crush the serpent's head. When he says to Abraham, through your offspring the nations shall be blessed. When he says in the Mosaic Covenant, through you Israel, the world will know my name. And then through David, one of your sons will sit on the throne forever. All those promises... All those promises, God has kept every single one of them in Christ. But parallel to all of that faithfulness throughout all of history leading right up to the cross, all you see is the unfaithfulness of men again and again. So praise God, the unfaithfulness of men like you and me does not nullify the faithfulness of God. Let's not question the righteousness of God, for He's proven it. He's made it clear. Let us give thanks. Let us repent, knowing that our only hope is the righteousness of God revealed in His Son, Jesus Christ. If you've yet to trust in Christ, I hope that you see today the unfaithfulness of men compared to the faithfulness of God. And I hope that you know He is faithful. And just as we read in Philippians 1.6, He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. This is good news for the, for the Christian, and it's good news for you who have yet to trust in Christ, because once you trust in Him, when God gives you new life, He will bring it to completion my fellow Christians, He will bring our sanctification to completion because He is faithful and despite our unfaithfulness, God, when we trust in Him, will continue to be faithful and He will bring about His good purposes for us. There's nothing in this world that can compare to a promise like that. There's nothing that can keep us falling under the conviction when we acknowledge the faithfulness of God and see our own faithlessness. I said at the beginning, my hope and my prayer today was that you would leave today even more sure of God's righteousness, even more sure of God's faithfulness. I pray that that's true. And I pray that that would be evident and lives changed for me, for all of you here. Let's pray.